This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 940, a conversation with Glenn Greenberg. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 940. It's another conversation with Glenn Greenberg. Glenn was gracious enough to be on the show, what was it, 20 or 30 episodes ago, and he returns now to talk once again about his time working at Marvel Comics. He also talks about his time working on the uh, so-called bookazines that he's currently working on. Uh, and there's uh, actually a couple coming out in the next few months, and there's a few that just came out. So uh, a lot of uh, Glenn Greenberg content out there. We also talk about working for Back Issue Magazine uh, in some specific articles he've written, he's written over the past as well and some of the relationships with creators he's had as well and some of the interviews he's done so i really enjoyed having glenn back on the show he's got a lot of interesting insights uh as someone who's obviously worked at you know at marvel uh i love talking about that period he's, he was involved with in the mid 90s because uh, it's just such a interesting you know kind of volatile period but you know he had a lot of uh, good things that came out of marvel in those days and he was involved with a bunch of them so uh it's really again always a pleasure to talk to glenn about that and also to talk more about his uh, his work over the last 20 20 years uh, in our last interview I kind of gave it very short mention unfortunately just because we talked so much about the Marvel days uh, so I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about his other writing projects as well in this one uh, and how it all kind of pulls together in terms of his career so I uh, think you're going to really enjoy this episode you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com if you'd like to send any letters in or have any comments for the show you can also rate and review us on iTunes subscribe to us on iTunes and also listen to us on Citrus so thanks again for listening and I think you're actually on Amazon Music as well in terms of under its podcast uh, section. I think the show actually ends up showing up in a bunch of surprising places, so I definitely recommend you listen to those. Uh, In this episode, we also talk a little bit about um, you know Ron Friends, Roger Stern, other friends of the show. Uh, If you check the back catalog, you will be able to, if you look at the website um, at comicshenanigans.podbean.com, you will be able to find, you know, Roger Stern interviews, interviews with Tom DeFalco, Jerry Conway, etc. So if you're interested, I have had a chance to talk with some pretty amazing guests over the last few years so if you do want to check it out you can uh, download those episodes there or they're on the itunes i think i updated it so that because uh, i think for a while only 700 episodes were showing which i guess isn't a problem unless you have 940 episodes and suddenly it's a big problem um so they all should all be showing up there i think up until episode a thousand it won't be an issue i think the maximum number you can have showing up is 999 so once i get up to a thousand that pilot will just kind of fall off itunes so uh, anyways thanks for listening to this episode let's jump right into the conversation with glenn greenberg Enjoy. Glenn, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me back. I had a, I had a great time last time. You know, I was listening back to our conversation. I realized I didn't ask the most fundamental question, which was, how did you really, you know, become a fan of comics? And how did you really get into the industry? I felt like we talked about so many big things about, like, Mark Gruenwald and working in comics and the transition out of comics, but somehow I missed the entry. Well, the entry... If, if memory serves, uh, the entry was the Batman TV show with with Adam West, which at that point was in reruns, and we're, we're talking the, the early 1970s, mm-hmm. and it was on, I think, every day, and I was exposed to that at a very young age. And um, 
not long after that, my brother, who was uh, substantially older than I was, he was he went away to college, and I must have been like rummaging through his closet uh, as as you know as little brothers <laughs> tend to do. And I stumbled upon a Batman comic book, and I was like, oh, wow, he's in comic books, too? And um, <laughs> and that was it. I mean, it, it, it pretty much was, you know, that was, that was it. I, that, that, that was the hook. Uh, it was Batman. First the TV show, then, then the comics. Um, and not long after that, and again, I think it was—I think it was courtesy of my brother's, you know, left-behind collection. Uh, I discovered the Incredible Hulk, hmm. and so by the time the, the TV show, that that first uh, TV movie with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno, uh, was was going to air, I was pretty well versed in the Hulk at that point, and so I was really excited uh, when when that when that aired. I was a little confused because I kept wondering, you know, who's this <laughs> David guy? When's Bruce going to show? up so <laughs> so when david banner becomes the hulk i was like oh i get it they changed his name okay i got it <laughs> you know um i was not prepared for that and i also wasn't prepared for, for the hulk to not be able to talk mm-hmm. and i wasn't prepared for the hulk to not be bulletproof and stuff like that so it it, it took a little bit of, a, of adjusting um on, on my end but you know i i just i i ate all that stuff up so it really was that's that's how i got into it and and it just it just went on and on and on um until um pretty much my my senior year of college um i was actually planning on on you know trying to, you know, go to law school and, and pursue a career in law. And um, I decided um, pretty much in the second half of my senior year, I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> what do I really want to do? And I realized I wanted to get into the arts. I either wanted to go to film school or, you know, get into comics. And as it turned out, I remembered that there was a guy who worked at Marvel. He was an executive editor that I'd known since I was like 12 years old, uh, a guy named Bob Budiansky. And at this point, we're talking um, uh, late, uh, uh, it would have been spring of 1991. So I reached out to Bob, and luckily he remembered me, because, you know, I met him when I was 12. He gave me a tour of the Marvel offices when I was 12 years old. Wow. Um, uh, Because it was was through... um, he was friends with um, the son. This gets a little confusing. But basically, he he was good friends with the son of my parent. One of my parents' really good friends. Okay. And uh, word got to him that I was a big Marvel Comics fan, and he, he gave me a tour. And every now and then, I I you know send him a little update of what I was up to. I would send him little drawings that I would do because he he used to be the artist on Ghost Rider, the original Ghost Rider series. Mm. So I drew him a picture of Ghost Rider, and, and, and I, I kept, I kept you know, in touch with him well enough that by the time I called him as I was getting ready to graduate from college, he remembered me. And I asked him for advice on you know, how, to, how to get into the business, and um, at the time, he was, uh, he was looking for an assistant at that point. And he said, but you, you, would have to, you would have to join now. You would have to come on board now. 
if, um, if if you were, if you wanted to be hired. And we're talking. This was like March, February of March, or mm. March of, of of my senior year. And I was like, I would love to, but if I dropped out of school now, my mom would kill me. <laughs> so. So um, after graduation, uh, I got a job in book publishing, but I stayed in touch with him, and I did I did um, uh, interview with him for a job at one point, didn't get it, and then about a year to the day after uh, I started my first post-college job, um, I was hired to, uh, he hired me uh, as his assistant, and so we're talking July of 92. I started as an assistant editor at Marvel. Um, and I think one of the things that helped me was, you know, at, at that point, I hadn't spent my entire, you know, work life in comics. I had a little bit of real-world experience at that point. I'd been working in book publishing, and so I was a little bit more well-rounded than, say, you know, some uh, high school kid or college kid who interned at Marvel got a job at Marvel and, and you know, their whole background, professional background was strictly comics. Mm-hmm. So I came in with a little bit more, you know, real world experience at that point. How did you find the adjustment from, like, as you said, kind of book publishing to comic publishing? Because comic publishing is a, a crazy pace in terms of, you know, you're constantly getting the next book out. Um, the pace never really bothered me. I mean, remember, I was, you know, I was still very young mm-hmm. so you know it's it's you've got the energy you've got the excitement <laughs> I, mean, I was so excited to be there that uh, you know i was really will, willing to put up with a lot um and in terms of uh, in terms of the adjustment yeah it was adju- the adjustment between a boring corporate uptight place where you had to you know dress nice every day to mm-hmm. basically going back to college <laughs> and you know being in a dorm i mean that was really that was really like the the equivalent of, of the uh, you know the the cultures you know it was great. I mean, it was so much fun, and it was so loose and so casual, and and um, it was meant to be. It was, it, you know, because creativity thrives when everybody's having fun, and 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 there are no, you know. Um, well, I don't want to say there were no restrictions. I mean, it was a business. It was a company, and and you know, we we had to be professional, <laughs> but but. Compared to other companies um, and and the the strict sort of corporate environment, you know, um, uh, it it was like night and day. You know, it's, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think there was any other company on the planet like Marvel during that time. And, and from what I understand, before I got there in the '80s, Marvel was even more, you know, <laughs> uh, loose and fun and and, and crazy. Um, but uh, but at this point, by the time I got there, we were already owned by um, uh, Ron Perlman, mm-hmm. and we were we were a publicly traded company. So you know, they, we cleaned up a little bit by by that point. But it was still, I mean, with with guys like Mark Grunewald and and Ralph Macchio and and uh, and Tom DeFalco and and uh, you know just some of the other folks there. I mean, you, you you couldn't help but just you know have a real fun time. Now, in that period, who was kind of your quote quote unquote kind of cohort in terms of other assistant editors of that time who were coming in in and around the time you did, uh, who were kind of experiencing Marvel for the you know first time at that level? Uh, who who were the other kind of people that you were kind of seeing as your peers in, in that respect? Well, it's you know I I don't know if any of their names would would. Um 
carry that much weight at this point. At least most of them, I think, because most of them kind of came and went and you know got out of the got out of the industry fairly quickly once they left. But you know, my class included uh, Barry Dutter, mm-hmm. um, Mark Bernardo, oh, yeah. Timothy Tui, um Let's see who else. Uh, I think Matt Idelson, who went on to become an editor at DC. Um, uh, Those are the ones that come immediately to mind, only because those, you know. Oh, Mike Lackey was 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 another one. Um, Oh boy. Those are the ones that come to mind because those were the guns, the guys I tended to hang out with the most. Mm-hmm. I, I've been lucky enough to have Tim Timothy on the on the show before. Yeah, he was he he's I loved him. Uh, he's he's you know he's still one of my my really good friends, and he gave me some of the the greatest writing opportunities that I ever had. Uh, when, when he when he he became an editor. Um, he, uh, you know, between between Star Trek uh, and Dracula, the, when, um, which were two comics that I wrote for Marvel. I mean, those are those are two where I look back and I have nothing but warm, loving feelings, and and you know, and that was because you know, a lot of that had to do with Tim because uh, he gave me the opportunity to, to do those. That's outstanding. Now, a question: When you're, you know, kind of new on the job, like how much? Did you work with Bob? I mean, obviously, Bob was, I, now correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't he part of the kind of the five group editor experiment when there was no major editor in chief and there was five kind of group heads? Was he one of them? That he was, but that came later. When, yeah. I, when I went to work for Bob, he was an executive editor in charge of special projects. That was, that was what he was doing. So, primarily, um, that entailed. The trading cards, which was a huge part of the company, the business at that point, it was it was just trading cards were, you know, just booming during that time. So I worked on uh, a bunch of the Marvel trading card series. The first one I worked on was the uh, the first Joe Jusco Marvel masterpieces set. Oh wow! Where Jusco did all the paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the the first project that I I came in on that one. Uh, and this was right on the heels. I, I didn't work on this one, but this was like right on the heels of when Jim Lee did the X-Men trading card set. Yep. He did all the cards. One of the sets that I did work on from start to finish was Mark Bagley's Spider-Man trading card set. I love that set. Which, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, the, the idea was to get, you know, all different inkers to, to, you know, to work over Mark. And so you got all these different kinds of styles and looks and, 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 and uh, approaches. So um, a lot of those cards was, you know, me just kind of sitting there saying, you know, hey, why don't we get, um, uh, you know, Adam Hughes to ink, you know, Mark Bagley. Why don't we get Carl Kiesel to ink Mark Bagley? You know, and, and so you get all these different styles, but it's all distinctly Mark Bagley, but there's like a different sheen to each you know, to each like sort of uh, set that 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 or subset that uh, that was that was there. So I worked on that, and so that was and, and posters. You know, um, Bob oversaw the posters and special uh, um, comic book adapt- you know movie adaptations. Um, so that was that was the special projects department. Then about two years in, they restructured the company, and that's what what you're talking about, where uh, there was no one editor in chief. They basically broke it up into the five families. 
No, you lived through that, and obviously, like you know, a lot of people have, have kind of heard about that period, but it's never been truly discussed. How, what was your feel about what that was like? Just someone working in the office when that happened, because that's a major restructuring of the company that really you know changed how everything was managed for years. Which, it, that being said, it makes sense that given how many you know comics were being published in the early to mid nineties, there was just a proliferation of of content, which would eventually lead to bankruptcy later. But I mean, what was your feeling, kind of? Being on the ground when that was happening. Well, I was still kind of wet behind the ears at that point, so I really didn't know, you know, the the ins and outs and and the full details of, of the business and what was going on. Um, I thought it was ridiculous. Um, I thought that you know the company had been you know doing fine under one editor editor in chief with you know a strong vision um, to sort of guide the whole line. Um, I thought that it was silly to, you know, basically break us up into five different groups and have five different editors-in-chiefs basically competing against each other, mm. which is what it was. And and the walls just kind of went up, you know. Um, not not that I was, you know, not, not that I was angling, because by this point I was working on books. I wasn't really working on trading cards anymore. I was working on, you know, various books, including... Uh, uh, the New Warriors and um, uh, uh, Nova, you know, the, whatever the whatever whichever reboot of Nova, you know, we we were working on, we were working on that one. A few other books I can't remember anymore. Uh, oh, uh, Deathlock, you know, oh, yeah. the revival of Deathlock and all that. So anyway, um, not that I was angling or hoping or wishing to, you know, uh, cross over with the X Men, you know, like, the way all the other bo- books were. But it basically became impossible <laughs> because because you know they were basically hoarding the characters and, and they didn't want to you know loan them out to anybody anymore because you know why why help your competition because that's basically what you know everybody everybody who wasn't in the X office we were their competition you know um, so it, it just it just sort of kind of siloed. The different, you know, the different offices, and I didn't like that. I didn't like the fact that Tom DeFalco wasn't editor in chief anymore. Mm. You know, uh, he was, you know, he was a steady hand who provided, you know, a strong, you know, vision and a strong sort of leadership uh, approach. Um, and uh, you know, I grew up, I grew up reading his his stuff. So it, uh, on, that, on that level alone, it was like, you know. Eh, I, I like seeing him every day. <laughs> you know, it, it, and no, and Tom was a really good editor in chief, and he, he was he was he was just he was just a decent decent person, um, and uh, so I missed that. And, uh, you know, on top of everything else, it's tough to see your 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 colleagues and your you know friends getting laid off. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was just it was just so motivated by greed and by just. Just things that you know, it didn't have to be that way. It was it was just because of the the pursuit of you know. Um, well, basically, my understanding, and again, I mean, I, I really don't have a, that much of a head for, for the you know the internal finance you know details and stuff like that. But my understanding is basically that uh, this guy Ron Perlman, who you know, bought the company in, in the late eighties, you know, he he. Um, uh, went into debt, and basically we had to make up for it, you know. And so he just kind of basically used Marvel as an ATM, and and just kind of ran it into the ground because he because to, to make budget and to you know 
make the kind of money that he wanted to be able to uh, uh, pay off his debts, you know, we ended up having to do a lot of stuff that was really self-destructive. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, pumping book after book after book and adding to the line and, you know, basically giving characters books that maybe they, they really didn't deserve their own titles. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, because we just had to max out the line so much. So characters that otherwise would probably wouldn't have gotten their own titles were getting titles. And because there were so many books and not enough great talent to go around, you were putting out all these books with, you know, not, not the best talent, not the top talents, not people who were necessarily ready for prime time, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, you know, we all saw, you know, we all saw it coming. It was like, how, how long can we sustain this? Uh, sure, you know, a book like, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to name any books because I don't want to inadvertently insult anybody. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you put out a, a, a new number one book and it was going to sell because it had a chromium cover or, <laughs> or an embossed cover and everybody was going to buy it. And then they get it home and they say, well, this story is not that great and the art's not that professional looking, uh, but hey, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be worth a fortune. I'll be able to sell you know, sell it and, and send my kid to college someday. And you know, you do that enough times, and you know, uh, the readers are going to abandon you. You know, not before too long. And because you you know printed so many copies, they're not rare, so they're not valuable. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing collapses because the people who were just looking at it as investments, they realize not only will I not be able to sell, you know, send my kid to, to college on this, I'm not even going to be able to sell them in a quarter bin. <laughs> yeah. And so it basically became a, it was a, it was a house of cards, and and uh, you know, wiser people than than, than I uh, at the time saw this from the start and they they would say it you know to themselves and they would say it around the office you know quietly um uh, and it was something that the the execs on on the uh on the upper floors uh either didn't understand or they didn't care about they wanted to, they wanted to make a quick buck and they did not care about the long-term health of the of the company it was just not a concern of theirs they saw us as, as nothing more than you know it was widgets and, you know, uh, you sold this much this year, we need you to sell this much next year. Not easy. No. So I, this is, I have a unique question, and you may not have a lot of comment on it, but I'm just more curious because it was, you know, an interesting oddity of the period. So you briefly show up as a character in the, the one-shot 101 Ways Down the Clone Saga, which is obviously a pastiche of what was going on in the office at the time. So I'm curious, what was the feeling at Marvel when that book was even released? Like, were, was it taken in good humor? Was it like, you know, what, or maybe, was it not even thought of at all? Like, you kind of mentioned before in our last interview where, you know, it's kind of breaking my illusions about, you know the clone, the Osborne Journal. Like no one really cared that much about it, or was looking at it. I mean, obviously you cared about it, but from an editorial perspective, it was just kind of on the schedule and had to be pushed out. So, what was the feeling on this one shot, and how did it come to be? Obviously, you didn't work on it directly, but you are a character in it. Uh, it was on the schedule; it needed to get pushed out. <laughs> <laughs> it really, it really was the same situation as um, as uh, the Osborne Journal, and that, and that, if if I remember correctly, it was coming out like late in the year. It was one of those, you know, we used to call them budget busters, and it was, it was, it was, it was these were books that were thrown onto the schedule, and. Um, 
you know, it was it was just to generate income for the last quarter of the year, and and you know, it happened with the uh, the Osborne Journal, and it happened with this too. Now, the reason why this happened, if I remember correctly, was we had so many memos that that were flying around that how how are we going to resolve this thing? That I believe one of our execs. Um, uh, came up with, as a joke, basically said, hey, we should put out a book, 101 Ways to End the Clone Saga. Because literally, we, we had like <laughs> that many memos, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, of ideas of how to get us out of this mess. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think that it was suggested and we all kind of like went, ha, 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 oh, wait a minute. Maybe we, maybe we can do this. And so... Um, I, like I, you know, I was given the Osborne Journal, and my dear friend Mark Bernardo, who was uh, an assistant editor on Spider-Man at that time, um, was given you know the 101 Clone Ways to, uh, and the Clone Saga book, and um, it was all done for laughs. I mean, if I remember correctly, I think Ralph Macchio edited that, and Ralph's got one of the greatest senses of humor I've ever encountered and he's always you know up for a laugh and he's never uh, shy about making himself the butt of jokes in fact the more ridiculous you make him look you know the more he enjoys it <laughs> so you know I mean he would probably encourage Mark to, to you know play really play it up and, and, and make it as, as funny as possible um, and so no there, there, there was no um, I, I don't remember there being any hurt feelings or anybody feeling like they were being made to look silly. And, you know, and the fact of the matter is a lot of that stuff really did happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, some of that stuff was like verbatim. I mean, some of the stuff from the memos um, were, were you know, literally taken from the memos and some of our reactions were absolutely... Uh, you know the, the way the way it happened. I mean, you know, in some ways, Mark had an easier job than I did because all he had to do was just write from life. You know. <laughs> well, it's funny because I feel like um, as a fan at the time. So I, again, I picked up this in Osborne Journal like off the stand. So I enjoyed them immensely. But again, I think that one, as I've come to understand more of you know, what Marvel was like at that time, who these actual personalities are, I definitely have a greater appreciation for it now because at the time, I didn't know who Bob was from, from you or from, you know, Ralph. Like, I didn't... They were they, they were names on a page as opposed to people I understood more about. But obviously, in the last, right. you know, 20-something years, being able to interview a bunch of these people, I've talked to Ralph, for example, I've talked to Bob. Um, you know, now they're actual people. So now reading it, I do definitely have a, a different appreciation for it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I think that it... it some of it may have been a little too on the inside, so that you know, uh, you know, maybe, maybe if, if you if you didn't work in the offices, you didn't necessarily get all the jokes. Maybe I mean, I, I haven't looked at it in you know however, however many years, um, so I, I I'd have to sit down with it and, and look at it with fresh eyes and say, okay, no, no, this everybody, any anybody can pick this up and, and get it. Um, but you know, I think that that was probably you know one of the one of the uh, traps that 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 book could have fallen into. Um, uh, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I seem to remember chuckling a lot while I was reading it and, uh, and, and just feeling like, you know, yeah, listen, you know, um, this, this is how it was. And, and, and uh, if, 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 uh, if people have a fun time reading this, you know, so much the better. Um, 
but uh, it's 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 been a it's been a really the only thing the only thing that I think you know if I had to um, go back and 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 sort of uh, uh, retro edit it, I think that the likenesses could have been a little, a little bit better mm. just to sort of like make the characters a little more distinctive. I think we all kind of tended to blend into each other, so, so it's hard to like see who you know. It's hard hard to sort of you know. Uh, uh, tell right at the, off the bat, like who who is who, um, except for Tom Brevoort, I, I guess. I yeah, no, Brevoort was so distinctive. Yeah, he had the beard, and you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, that was the only thing that, that it might have been hard to you know tell tell some of us apart. Okay, I, I was always curious about that because it's one of those books that you know was just such a you know fun book, but it was also like this happened. It's kind of like um, I think in the early to mid '90s where they had Marvel Riot. Like I'm, I'm surprised that book existed either. Like it was just one of those books that just kind of showed up on the shelves and then disappeared. What book was this? Marvel Riot. I don't, I don't even know what that is. Oh yeah, there was a. I think there may have only ever been one issue, but there was an issue. It was all about like the Age of Apocalypse from X Men. Uh, so it was like a. Oh. It was like a. Yeah, I guess it was just like a parody book. I have it somewhere. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't really paying much attention to the X Men book, so <laughs> so I'm, I, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that uh, that that some of that kind of stuff like kind of you know, slipped past my radar. So I want to jump ahead for a second. So we talked very briefly last time, just kind of in passing. It's like I made you just take twenty the last twenty years of your life and kind of condense it into two minutes. So that was a disservice on my part. But um, one thing I was curious about was just your work throughout you know the years working on Back Issue magazine. Um, and just I'm curious, kind of how you go about kind of pitching, or did they kind of come with you with topics? And then I have a few specific questions about some of the articles you've written. But I'm just curious what kind of your process is uh, first, kind of pitching with with back issue and then how you do your research process oh boy uh, that's a big one well yeah no it, I mean it, it goes back I mean it goes back to the earliest days of, of, of the magazine like when they first launched it um, uh, if I remember correctly Marv Wolfman and George Perez were featured in the first issue so I was going to buy it I mean, there was no <laughs> doubt I mean I snatched it right up and um uh, again, if I remember correctly, um, both Marv and George, who I had worked with when I was at Marvel, both of them mentioned me in that first issue in, in their joint interview and had, you know, really, really nice things to say about me. <laughs> so I was, you know, feeling pretty good about them and feeling really good about this magazine. And um, I had reached out. I Somehow I had managed to track down contact information for the editor-in-chief, Michael Urey, and I wrote to him, and I said, listen, if you ever um, uh, do a story about, say, uh, Dracula, you know, I'd really be interested in doing that, Tomb of Dracula, cause I, because I have written, I, I wrote the, the most recent Dracula project for Marvel, which was a three-issue limited series that I did with, with, you know, one of your favorite guys and mine, Pat Olive. Um <laughs> We did we did a, a Dracula limited series together for Marvel, and so I said, you know, I'd love to write about Dracula, and and he got back to me and he uh, asked me for you know other suggestions. But I don't think I don't think Dracula was on the docket at that point, but he asked me for some other ideas, and I pitched him uh, a piece about Star Wars, the Marvel Star Wars series mm-hmm. uh, from the from the seventies and eighties, and he snatched that right up. 
that was that was one of the first articles that I did, and the other one was a history of the uh, the Hulk, uh, the Rampaging Hulk magazine, uh, which we, which we talked about briefly uh, during the last time you and I spoke. Uh, I mentioned it, and so uh, those were I think the first two that I did. And uh, he accepted them because they fit in with themes. Because, you know, back issue does theme issues. And so he had a science fiction, you know, uh, a science fiction issue that he could slot the Star Wars one in. And I think for the Hulk one, it might have been an issue devoted to the Hulk. I can't remember. Um, or black and white. I, I can't, I, you know what, I can't remember what, what the theme was. But it just, it, they worked for the magazine. And so I did, I did a couple. And so basically what happened was, was um, uh, I became a recurring writer for Back Issue. And that put me on basically the, uh, the distribution list. And so when, when Michael puts together a theme for issues, he puts out feelers to, to writers because he has ideas for, you know, the, the articles that are going to be in those issues. And he just puts out a feeler and says, you know, uh, amongst his regular writers, do you have any interest in these, in these topics? And uh, that's really how it's been working for me um, since the early days. I mean, after, after my first few pitches, um, I really just basically became like one of the guys that, that, that he sends ideas to and if I see something that really catches my eye and I think, oh man, I can do this, um, I'll jump at it. And so uh, that, that's basically how it's been the last few years, although I will say that uh, Michael has another magazine called Retro Fan that uh, I write for occasionally and I pitched him uh, a couple of articles that, that uh, we ended up going with, which was an interview with Richard Donner, mm. uh, the director of Superman the Movie, and it, uh, an interview that, I, that I'd already done uh, but was looking for a home for it uh, with Mark Hamill. Oh, wow. So, you know, for the most part, these days, it's, you know, Michael will send out, you know, to, to his selected writers the theme of an upcoming issue, these are the these are the uh, idea, story ideas that I have. Are you interested? And and if uh, if something really strikes my fancy, I will immediately write back to him with a pitch and say, "This is how I would handle it. This is who I would interview. This is the angle. Please give it to me." <laughs> now, did you along those lines? Who did you have to knock out of the way to do the story on the Hulk TV show for Back Issue Seventy? Um, boy, you're you're you're. You might be taxing my memory here. Um, I think I might have pitched that. I think I think I might have that, that might have been one of the one of the one of the ones that I that I pitched to him back then. Because that's that's long ago enough that that I, I might have pitched that one. And he said, "Oh, that's great. I have an I have an upcoming issue of the Hulk in the '70s that'll fit in real well there." Nice. So I had a question about that interview specifically, but I mean, just in terms of you know your research and and how you go about kind of finding subjects to you know find interviews with, etc. So that one was really interesting because I guess you interviewed the the EP from that show as someone who again, as you said, that was kind of a seminal moment for you as a as a younger uh, you know viewer and watcher and reader of these things. How important was that to you to be able to have a chance to talk with someone who had such an instrumental role in the show? It was exciting. Um, you know, I mean, 
it was made easy because the, the person we're talking about, Kenneth Johnson, uh, who, you know, when I think back, I mean, boy, this, this guy really shaped my childhood mm-hmm. in the sense that he worked on the Six Million Dollar Man, he created the Bionic Woman, he uh, developed and oversaw the Incredible Hulk TV show, uh, he created uh, and wrote and directed the original V miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, he was a pretty heavy hitter, in, in, you know, for, for, for little Glenn Greenberg, you know. <laughs> um, the cool thing about him is he is so approachable um, and, and so cool about everything. I mean, he does, he does these great commentaries when they put out, you know, DVDs or Blu-rays of his old shows. And he will sit there and do commentaries. And they're so interesting and so enlightening, and you really feel like you're having, a, you know, you're listening to a, you know, you're, you're, he's talking to you, not at you, you know, it's, it's almost like a conversation. And on some of these uh, commentaries, he's always saying, and you can write to me anytime, and he, he, he would give his AOL address, you know. <laughs> he says, I, I read all of my emails, you can write to me at any time. And so I, I guess the idea, again, this is so long ago, I can't remember how it all came about, but, um, I, I took him up on it, and I wrote to him, and I said, I would love to interview you about Incredible Hulk TV show for this for this magazine. And uh, he got back to me, and it, it was just, there was no, it, it, you know, it, there was no stress about it, and there was no sort of like, oh, you are, you know, writing to a very important person, and you have to, you know, really sort of throw yourself at his feet. It was nothing like that, you know? Um, and so it was it was really easygoing, and it wasn't, I probably wasn't until after I got off the phone with him, maybe after doing our interview. Um, initially, I only thought I was going to have him for like 15, 20 minutes. We ended up talking for an hour, oh, wow. you know? And um, it wasn't until I got off the phone with him, I was like, wow. <laughs> I just interviewed Kenny Johnson, you know, and he told me to call him Kenny. You know, it was it was um, it was really cool. Um, but but it, it's sort of like what, what I was telling you last time uh, when I was when you were asking me about what it's like to write Star Trek or Spider Man. You know, after being a fan for so many years, you really just have to put that aside in your brain and and approach it strictly as. This is a person of accomplishment. You are a journalist. You need to be objective and professional and keep it together. You know, um, don't 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 become a, a, a you know a, a slobbering fanboy and just fawn all over somebody. You know, it's it's it's, it's hard. It can be hard. You know, I think if if, if someone told me tomorrow uh, you're interviewing Paul McCartney on Thursday. I would, I would, I would be shaking in my boots, you know, <laughs> and I would probably be shaking in my boots until I sat down to talk to him. And even then, I don't know if I could keep it together, you know. I, I hope I could, but um, you you really have to just enter a, a, a completely different mindset and think of yourself first and foremost as a bringer of information, and you know. Ask your questions. You can get into a conversation, but don't start fawning and don't start, you know, don't be, I hope this isn't, you know, dating me or, and throwing, you know, throwing something over your head, but, you know, don't be like Chris Farley in that Saturday Night Live sketch <laughs> where he interviewed Paul McCartney, you know? Mm-hmm. You, ever, you ever see that sketch? Long time ago, but yeah. Okay. 
don't be that way. <laughs> That's just don't do that. And and you know, I just don't. I I really really don't. I uh, I I'm, I I can say with confidence that I you know um, probably the the closest I ever came to you know descending into that, and I don't think I did, was when I interviewed Richard Donner. And I just said, you know, I, I just want to, you know, I just want to thank you for, you know, for, for, for giving me and my generation such a, such a, a brilliant, you know, piece of, of entertainment that, that we could all grow up on, you know. And he was, he was very moved by that. And, and, uh, but this was after the interview as we were wrapping up, you know. Of course. So yeah. one thing, I, I, it's just a small thing, but one thing I just found interesting during uh, that article, actually, from the, from the interview uh, with the EP, was the idea, because I'd always heard the story about they had to change the name because they thought that Bruce was too effeminate a name. So that was like, I'd always heard that. It always made me laugh because that's my dad's name and my middle name. So I, I was kind of laughed about that. I'm like, so, so I make fun of my dad for that sometimes. And then when he mentions it was more about it didn't sound like a, a smart enough name or that, you know, intelligent enough. And I was like, I had never heard that before. Uh, I don't think he said that in my interview. I think I think what he said in my interview is that he hated alliterative names. That was too comic booky for him. I thought you used. I actually, I thought you said both, but I could be wrong. Could be misremembering it now. Well, he, he has said that in other in other interviews, but mm. but I believe in the one that that I did with him. He he did say he he hated alliterative names like you know Peter Parker and. You know, uh, Clark Kent and Lois Lane and Lana Lang. You know, he, he felt that it was very comic booky, and he wanted he wanted a more mature name, I guess he said. But also, his son's name was David. Hmm, that's right. So, you know, he wanted to get away from that. And if if you if you recall, my comeback to him was, yeah, but the star of your show's name was Bill Bixby. <laughs> Very funny. And your guest star's and your guest star's name was Susan Saran, uh, uh, Susan Sullivan. I did like that you put that you made sure to put that like in there. Like obviously it's a, it's a great rejoinder, but the fact that you put it in the print article, I thought was a nice touch. Yeah. Oh, he started laughing. He was like, you know, I never I never realized that. <laughs> you know, uh, which which cracked me up. Uh, but yeah, I. I um you know, I mean, the other the other rumor, and and Stanley propagated this for for years and years, and there may maybe there's some truth to it. Uh, was that they felt that Bruce was a very sort of effeminate sounding name because because back then in the 70s, Bruce was a name that was very uh, associated. You know, it was, it was considered a very sissy sissy name. You know, Bruce. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, but but you know what, Kenneth Johnson since the start has been very very consistent about his reasons and I have no reason to to uh, to uh, to doubt him or, or to think that, he, that that he's lying um, so so I, I I will believe him until until you know until uh, proven otherwise or shown otherwise okay. but uh, st- st- certainly Stan said that yeah they changed his name because they, they, they thought it was a very sissiest sis- sissiest name uh, and then you think well Bruce Springsteen you know, mm-hmm. is anybody going to call him a sissy? Nope. He was big in the seventies, but. So I have a question. So one thing we talked about last time, um, and we talked about like things you haven't gotten to work on, would love to someday. And you kind of mentioned that, like you know, one one of the things that you never got a chance to do and would love to do someday would be a full length Star Trek novel. And I guess I never really asked, but I, I, I feel like the answer is pretty clear. It would have to be TOS, right? Or would it be a different variation? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, my my heart belongs to to TOS. Um, I've written I've written a couple of um, shorter uh, novels. Um, I guess you'd call them novellas uh, that were set in the in the next generation time frame, and and I used I used Picard, and I to a lesser extent I used Riker in those. And uh, in the second one that I did, I actually did use Scotty because you know Scotty uh, uh, ended up in the 24th century in that in that one episode of the Next Generation. Mm-hmm. So I was able to pick up on him. Um, but yeah, my 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 heart really does belong to to the original characters, and you know I would I would love a chance to to do a full length novel with you know Kirk, Spock, McCoy. Um, I, I felt like, you know, I got some of that out of my system when I did uh, that Star Trek Untold Voyages limited series for Marvel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you know, this did, you, don't, you, don't, you never get it fully out of your system. There's always another idea, another, you know, I, even, even to, to this day, I was, I, I was always, I'm always thinking about, hmm, that could be a good Star Trek story. Hmm, that could be a good Star Trek story. But... Uh, I feel like that's just the writer, the writer's burden, isn't it? That there's always, there's always another story. Like even in your article for back issue about uh, Green Goblin and Demetrius saying, like, there's always another story. Like I've never had a chance to write Norman and Harry both alive. That'd be another story. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it, it's the only difference now is, is is because you know because it hasn't happened and, and it's unlikely to. You know, if an idea pops into my head, I don't hold on to it. Um, as long as long as I used to, you know, mm-hmm. if an, if a Star Trek idea would pop into my head years ago, I would actually sit down and start like you know trying to develop it, and, you know, think about you know well maybe I could pitch this you know as a, as a novel, the pocketbooks or you know Simon Schuster and all that. Nowadays, you know, it's uh, I, I have you know other concerns, more realistic pursuits, um, and so uh, while, while that reflex is still there, I, I don't really act on it anymore. I'm sorry, I'm sad to say. <laughs> Okay. Now, one thing I did want to ask about. So we talked very in brief last time about you know the bookazines that you've worked on. And I was just curious. You know, we didn't really mention how you got into bookazines. Like that's you know an interesting. And again, before you said bookazines, I'd never even heard anyone call it that. But it's a perfect description of what it is. Well, I'm just curious how you kind of got into working on those. And obviously, you're working on a few right now. But how did you kind of get into working in that? Because that's an interesting kind of side avenue. I would say like it's not a you know the your stereotypical monthly periodical, but it's a you know, kind of like you returning to special projects, so to speak. So, what is it like to kind of work on those? Well, it's 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 been great. Uh, it's it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, how I got into it was I was I was invited to. Um, I I used to work. This is in my post Marvel life. I was working at Time Inc. back when there still was a Time Inc. You know, the publisher of Time Magazine and Entertainment Weekly and Sports Illustrated, People. You know, it was, it was a big conglomerate at one time. Now it's not. <laughs> um, but uh, I was on my way out. Uh, I was there for about four and a half years. And on my way out, I I, um, I had uh, let it be known that I would love to work on, on some of those uh, bookazine projects that they were putting out. And um, uh, the opportunity came up. And so for uh, for them, I contributed pieces to. Uh, they did they did a bookazine on the X Files. Mm-hmm. I contributed to that. They did a bookazine on uh, the Avengers. You know, but when the uh, I guess it was the second movie was coming out. Oh, no, uh, Infinity War was coming out. So oh, okay. I contributed to that one, uh, and I did so well on those that I was you know offered more assignments. Uh, one for. Um, 
uh, A Wrinkle in Time, the movie of A Wrinkle in Time. And there was a really weird one that, that I actually ended up having a ball working on, which was, uh, was a history one for Time Life, oh. uh, which was uh, the, the Greatest Prison Escapes. Oh, really? Uh, so it was historical, uh, which was a blast. I had a lot of fun on that. And um, then what happened was, was um, uh, a per, a, the person that helped me get into Time, Inc. in the first place, he was the publisher of uh, you know uh, uh, some of the kids' magazines, including Time for Kids, Sports Illustrated for Kids. He was the publisher. He helped me get my foot in the door there and recommended me for the job that I ultimately got at Time Inc. Well, anyway, he went off and and, and you know to do uh, formed his own company. He's doing his own things, and he got into the uh, the bookazine uh, business. And out of the blue. Um, he called me and asked me, you know, do I know anything about bookazines? Have I, have I ever, like, seen them? I was like, yeah, I just did a whole bunch for, for Time Inc. <laughs> and he said, well, we're doing these, and would you be interested? Uh, and to make a long story short, uh, when he told me that uh, one of the first ones that, that he had on, and, and me in mind for was John Lennon, I said, when do I start, <laughs> basically? <laughs> um um, and and um, it, it really kind of snowballed from there. Um, I, I started with John Lennon, and that came out uh, two years ago, which is blowing my mind. I can't believe it's been two years because it would have been uh, it, it, was, it was timed to come out for his 80th birthday, which was 1940. Was he was born, and the 40th anniversary of his death, which was 1980. So that was two years ago. That that one came out. And in quick succession, and, and you know, my, my, you know, this guy, Bob, uh, the publisher, uh, Bob Durr, he just has this uncanny knack of, of just sort of knowing what my interests are, because the first one was John Lennon, the second one was Star Trek, <laughs> the, the third one was Marvel, um, I believe the fourth one was Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the fifth one was Spider-Man. Uh, and, you know, it's just like, Bob, it's like, how do you, you know, he doesn't know me that well, but every single topic he throws at me. And I've also, I've, contri- I've contributed to, um, to a couple of the other ones. Uh, uh, I contributed one piece to the Lord of the Rings one that they did, because oh, yeah. uh, it, it, it involved the Beatles. So he asked me to do, a, to do a piece about the Beatles and Lord of the Rings. And uh, I didn't have time to work on this other one, but I contributed a piece to the one they're doing about the Godfather. Nice. So that's really it. Um, you know, Bob called me out of the blue, decided he would, you know, just kind of take a chance that I'd be interested in this kind of thing and that I'd actually be good at it. It worked out great. And he just kept calling me. And, and for the most part, I'd say he's, he's got a 98.5 track record <laughs> that uh, either he, he picks the right topic or he gets me at the right time, you know, where I, I can fit it into my schedule. And so um, uh, I just did one. I just wrapped up one uh, last week that uh, I was able to do about 75% of it, but uh, my schedule didn't allow me to do the full thing, but I, I did about 75%. The next one I'm, that I'm working on right now, uh, the plan is for me to do the whole thing. And uh, the, the, the one that I finished last week takes me to a galaxy far, far away. Nice. And uh, the one that I'm working on now takes me back into the world of the Beatles. 
Very nice. So I had a question, yeah. not, not even a question, but more of a comment that after you and I had talked last time and you kind of, because I had never, again, heard the term bookazine, et cetera, and I swear I went to like just walking through my drugstore and I was like, there are so many bookazines here that I didn't realize. <laughs> like suddenly, yeah. it's like you open my eyes and I'm like, oh my God, they're everywhere. Yep. You can't unsee them now, right? No, they're ever Like, I, I, I guess I'm, I, you know, I, I, when I, I don't get a lot of periodicals anymore so i never really noticed if the kind of the magazine racks were very crowded with with bookazines but now that you mention it that's all i see well the only ones worth getting are the ones that i wrote so uh, <laughs> get those absolutely now, I, the, the, I have to say that the the spider-man one uh seemed to be like all over the place when when it first came out mm. and the responses that, that at least i've gotten have been just phenomenal on that, and um, I, I personally feel that you know, at, at, to date, that's probably the best one that uh, that I've done because that one I was able to do original reporting rather mm. than just kind of you know re- restate and just sort of you know uh, retell stories that 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 other people have written. Uh, for for the Spider-Man one, I did about I don't know ten ten or a dozen. Uh, original interviews, uh, uh, all of which are reflected in, in that book, and, and that was a blast. For the Star Trek one, I, I actually was able to interview uh, George Takei, Mr. Sulu. Nice. And uh, but that wasn't that wasn't um, uh, like the main thrust of the book. Whereas uh, with Spider Man, I mean Jerry Conway, Tom DeFalco. Uh, 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 Roger Stern, uh, uh, Howard Mackey, Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Bagley, all of them are, are, are in there, you know, um, uh, with, with new interviews and new quotes, and, you know, it's, it was that was a lot of fun. That's outstanding. Uh, about Takai, or Takai, or Takai, and I forget how to pronounce it properly, uh, was, he, was he just as genuine as everyone kind of imagines? Like, how was that interview? <laughs> well... <laughs> It was great. Uh, again, I thought, you know, we, we, we'd have like maybe a half an hour, 40 minutes, and, and I was worried about, you know, I said, well, I'm, I'll start wrapping up, you know, because I was worried about his time. Mm-hmm. And he was like, why are you wrapping up? I, I, I'm, I'm happy to keep talking. So I was like, <laughs> okay. You know, um, it's, it, it certainly beat my first encounter with him, which is kind of like this infamous story um, uh, from like the late nineties. Uh, it would have been around nineteen. Yeah, it would have been nineteen ninety eight because I was I was writing the Star Trek Untold Voyages comic book, and uh, I was actually the issue that I was working on was one that that spotlighted Mr. Sulu, right? Um, so I was at a convention. Uh, I was still working at Marvel, and I was representing Marvel at a convention in uh, I guess it was Chicago, and George Takei was one of the guests. And uh, he was basically standing in the lobby of the hotel holding court. And my friend, uh, who I who I'd gone to Chicago with for this trip, saw George Takei and like was hitting, like really nudging me on the shoulder, saying, "Go say hello to him. Go say hello to him." You know, he said, "You you, you just wrote a comic book about his character. You gotta go. You gotta say something to him." So I was like, "Oh, all right. I'll I'll go over to him and." Like I said, he was holding court, so it was a bunch of people surrounding him. And I, I went up to him and, and I said, uh, hello, Mr. Takei, I'm, I'm you know, Glenn Greenberg from Marvel Comics. And he goes, oh, Marvel Comics. 
And I was like, <laughs> yeah, you, we, we have the rights to, to Star Trek now. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of the writers. I'm, I'm, I, I'm writing one of the Star Trek comics. I just, wrote a, I just wrote a comic book about your character. He goes, oh, you've written a story about Captain Sulu? And I was like, well, I wrote a story about Sulu. He, he's not a captain in my story. He goes, because you know, I am a captain now. <laughs> I was like, I was like, yeah, I, I know. He goes, I was supposed to be a captain in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, but the scene got cut, so that was eliminated. And I was lobbying to be a captain in Star Trek III, and Star Trek IV, and Star Trek V. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I, I know all this. I said, and I'm trying to like say to him, yeah, I, I know, I, I know you're a captain, but I'm trying to get across to him that he's not a captain in my story because this takes place mm -hmm. before, you know. He's still going, I goes, you can imagine my delight when I received the script for Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and I turn to the first page and it says, Captain Sulu of the USS Excelsior. I'm like, yeah, yeah, great. I said, well, my story takes place years before that. It's the story, you know, it shows how Sulu decided that he wants to become a captain, you know? So he says to me, uh, well, do I become a captain at the end of the story? And I'm like, no. <laughs> he says, he says, well, who wants to read that? I'm a captain now. And I was like, oh boy, I, I got to get out of this conversation. Oh my and goodness! All, his, all the people, all the people surrounding him, is you know his his cadre of you know fans and followers start laughing at me. I'm like, I got I got to get out of here. And I gave the friend, you know, my friend who you know nudged me over to say hello to him. I gave him like this really dirty look. It's like thanks a lot, you know. <laughs> Anyway, that, that was my first encounter with George Takei. And, and so fast forward to a couple, about a year and a half ago, and here we are again. <laughs> <laughs> this time over, um, uh, it, was, it was either Skype or, or, or Zoom, one of, uh, probably Skype. Um, and he couldn't have been more lovely. <laughs> you know, I didn't bring it up. You know, I'm sure he doesn't remember, so I just let it go. And and so my most recent memory of George Takei is is a very fond one. We we he was he was very he was very delightful. It was he was very sweet and very funny and just 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 the way you 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 would hope he would be. When you take on an interview with someone like that, who must have been asked every Star Trek question possible. I mean, it's been how many years, and so I would, have, and how many interviews, and obviously people want to talk to him about it. What was it like for you to try and, like, did you try and find a, a unique angle, or did you know that you were going to kind of have to go over some of the same types of bits that, that had been, you know, well, kind of uh, documented in some way before? Or, like, how do you approach something like that with someone who's been as interviewed about the subject as, as George Takei? Takei. Takei. Oh, my God, I did it again. <laughs> um... I went into it specifically with the with the goal of asking him questions that he hadn't been asked a million times before. Mm -hmm. I started the interview saying, my goal here is to not bore you, and I don't want to ask you questions that you've been asked a million times before. And I asked him the first question, and he started laughing and said, I thought you didn't want to ask me questions I haven't been asked a million times before. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, I don't know if it's possible at this point to ask him questions that he hasn't been asked a million times before. Um, but what I did try to do um, is, is, is try to keep it current in the sense that I, I think one of the, one of the questions that, that I think I, I kind of hit upon that we ended up having a really great conversation about was, you know, 
uh, at one time, you know, uh, certainly back in the 60s, uh, you know, Star Trek uh, had something to say, whether it was about race, Vietnam, uh, nuclear war, the Cold War, all that kind of stuff. And I said, do you think that Star Trek is still um, fulfilling that mission or fulfilling that, that, that role? Or do you think that there are other shows that, that have kind of like taken up the baton and Star Trek is you know, not really doing that anymore? And uh, he had some choice words to say about the J.J. Abrams movies. Um, uh, for sure, uh, not very complimentary ones. <laughs> um, which was it was insightful. It, it was insightful, um, uh, and it was certainly interesting hearing it from somebody who was so intimately involved with the original sh- the original show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think that that was you know something that was able to elicit a, a, at least a newer response, if not a completely original one. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, I asked him, you know, do you think, you know, do you, um, because, because of the, the times that we were living in, you know, uh, back then, when I say we, I mean we as a society, I wasn't born yet, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, the turmoil that was going on in Star Trek, uh, excuse me, during the time of Star Trek in the 60s, you know, does he, do we see, does he think it was, it, it's, it's better now? Or are we slipping back in to, you know, that that kind of of society that we that we were 55 years ago, and um, you know, again, he, he had some you know really interesting things to say about that, and and you know, if if he was asked that before, if he did have to give that you know that answer, uh, somewhere else, uh, I don't know that I had seen it, and so in that regard, I, I think that you know. I was able to to get a, a nice little conversation going with him. Um, it is a challenge, especially when it's somebody. And, and you know the other thing you have to keep in mind: no matter what you ask uh, some celebrities, because they've been around so long, they have these sort of like programmed, pat, ready-made answers. So really, no matter what you ask them, they will fall back on their ready-made answers, even if it doesn't exactly address the question that you're asking. Mm-hmm. Very true. So I have a question before yeah. before I let you go for the evening. Um, when you were working on the most recent one, well, I guess not the most recent one now because you've worked on others, but when you were working on the Spider-Man one and you said, as you said, you got a chance to do, you know, these brand new interviews with a number of different subjects. Um, was there, I mean, you were obviously so intimate with Spider-Man and you also worked in the Spider-Man office, so your knowledge is better than a lot. Um, was there anything that really kind of stuck out to you as a surprise or a, kind of a factoid or a nugget that you're like, I didn't quite know that before or something that you felt was new and surprising to you as someone who, you know, definitely has, is, is much more familiar with the subject than most? I would say that a little bit of that happened primarily when I was talking to Brian Michael Bendis, only because uh, Ultimate Spider-Man and and Miles Morales Spider-Man are far more recent, and they uh, and and those incarnations of Spider-Man uh, I am not intimately involved in um i i wasn't there when when those you know creations came about and um i haven't read every single story that 
those you know the, 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 about those characters. You know, I've read most of Ultimate Spider-Man at this point. I don't think I've read you know very much at all of, of Miles Morales. So talking to Bendis and hearing you know the whole creation the Genesis story of how Ultimate Spider-Man came about, why he decided to kill off Peter Parker, or that version of Peter Parker, why he decided to, to bring in Miles Morales. That was newer to me. I mean, I, I, knew, the, I knew the basics, but hearing it in his words in, in, in detail, because he, he and I talked for you know, quite a while, um, that... That gave me some insights, but you know, talking to talking to all the guys from from the classic days, for me it was you know it, it was stuff I already knew. It was great to hear it again, you know, right out of the horses' mouths, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I would say, in terms of uh, oh, see, uh, well, if you're talking strictly about the comics, it would be Bendis. But I also interviewed uh, uh, John Semper, mm. who was uh, the uh, the executive producer and head writer of the uh, Spider-Man animated show from the 90s? Oh, yeah. I've had him on... Actually, I had him on the show before. Okay. Yeah, great guy, isn't he? Oh, yeah. He's, he's very interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that show for me was incredibly informative because I would have been like 11 when the show started, not to make you feel older. But when that show would have started in 94, I was like 11 years old, the exact right age for that. And that remains a really big high watermark for me becoming a fan of the character so uh, yeah no I okay. was, that's why I had to have him on the show <laughs> okay great well so you know who I'm talking about and and he had such great stories to tell and and just real interesting anecdotes and, and you know about the personalities that he worked with and the challenges of getting that show I didn't I mean I was at Marvel during that time and I certainly watched the show um, and uh, the, the back the behind the scenes stuff that he told me was just you know uh, both both frustrating and hilarious, you know, uh, and and the fond stories that he had of working with Stan, um, you, you know, because I worked with Stan too, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I mean that that's if I if I ever do your show again, we should we should talk about all the times I worked with Stan. I would love to, absolutely, yeah. Stan's always an interesting character to hear people talk about. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, there's there, <laughs> I got a couple of I got a couple of real real real. <laughs> Real uh, corkers, um, but uh, but yeah, but uh, but but John Semper. Um, so yeah, that that was you know it was really interesting hearing that about what went into producing that show. Um, but in terms of in terms of the the comic you know the, the classic Spider Man and, and the comic book related stuff, it was you know uh, it, for me it was just a, a, reiter- a reiteration, uh, but also an opportunity to talk to some you know old friends and 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 colleagues and and people that uh, that I really really uh, uh, loved working with. Mm-hmm, for sure, I mean, so obviously you've talked to Jerry Conway a lot in the past, um, and obviously hugely influential in the medium as well. Was there anything? Like he's he obviously worked on Spider Man two different times, like two major kind of arcs. Well, actually, because he did a more recent one too. But you know, he's known for two specific periods of working on Spider Man. Um, what was it like again talking to Jerry about? You know, obviously it's not new. He's told these stories before. But what is is it like to kind of you know talk to Jerry some more? Jerry, you know, I, I've spoke, I've interviewed Jerry numerous times, and the first time I ever did, we we talked for about an hour and a half. And um, I, I walked away from that interview feeling like I had been sitting at the feet of 
the master. <laughs> I felt like I had gotten a, a you know a writing tutorial from you know the, the, the wise the wise man up on the mountaintop. You know, and and it, it was just it, it was just in, over the course of an interview, just hearing his approach to story and to character and what how everything fits together and what what everything is supposed to mean and how it's supposed to work and the mechanics. It was just so eye opening, um, and it was it was just absolutely terrific. And every time I've spoken to to Jerry to get his insights, because this man was responsible for for some of the most important comic book stories for me growing mm -hmm. up. Whether and not just Spider Man, his run on Batman. I rank as, as one of the all-time best when he was writing Batman and Detective Comics in, in the um, late 70s, early 80s. I mean, that was, that was the sweet spot for me. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, when I think of, like, you know, the, the, the top five Batman runs of all time, I would put him in the top three. So to be able to talk to this man, for him to be, you know, willing to give me, you know, his time, such generous amounts of time... Um, it was a thrill, it absolutely a thrill, and uh, I never got to work with Jerry uh, at Marvel. The only the, the only time I ever did, you know, kind of sort of work with him is when we collected the uh, the original clones, the Spider Clone stories from the seventies mm -hmm. uh, into a trade paperback, and I I, I hired Jerry to, to write the intro, oh. and that was the. That was the one and only time that I ever got to work with him in a transactional sense, where it's like, hey, you do this work for me, I'll pay you, kind of thing. <laughs> um, I would have loved to have gotten the chance to work with Jerry, you know, to, to be his editor, you know? Mm. Um, it, just, it just wasn't in the cards uh, during, during that particular time, but I'm, I'm thrilled to have you know, gotten to you know, know him even to the, the little extent that, that, that I have as, as you know, one of the guys who interviews him, you know? For sure. It's funny you mentioned that. That was one of the, one of the first trade paperbacks I ever purchased was the Clone Genesis trade paperback from yeah. the mid-'90s, so I, I, I very much appreciate that piece of work. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad. Thank you for saying that. I, I was the assistant editor on that, and uh, uh, Frank Zappa's son... Once vi uh, his son Ahmet visited the Marvel offices one day and, and wandered into my office, and I, I recognized him. I'm like, you're Ahmed Zappa. He's like, yeah. I said, oh, so I, I guess you're a big comic book fan. And I'm like, yeah, big. So I, you know, it was hot off the presses that I gave him a copy of the Clone Genesis uh, trade paperback. That's nice. Uh, when you speak about, I mean, obviously, like Jerry Conway kind of being the master, another one that I would put up on that list is, I guess, a friend of yours, but I would say he's more like the jazz player of comics, is JMD or J.M. DeMatteis, because to listen to him talk about craft and how he builds stories and how the like, characters kind of move through him, it feels like more of almost a, a spiritual jazz, like he's just kind of going along, but it's all perfectly t like set up. Like It's just something magical about whenever he puts a book, you know, puts a story to, onto a page. I, I I can't I can't argue with, with any of that. Uh, he's he's one of the best, uh, one of the one of the all time best. Um, I I had to reread uh, some of his spectacular Spider Man run about a year or two ago for for an article that I wrote for Back Issue Magazine about uh, the Green Goblin, and I it blew me away how well those stories hold up. And, you know, for anybody who says that the 90s was a real wasteland for the comic book business, and especially for Marvel, that Marvel would just put out 
dross and junk and garbage during the 90s. Well, read any Spider-Man story with J.M. DeMattis' name on it, and, and you will come away with a different opinion, because it, it's, just, it's just brilliant. Uh, of course, he's done a lot more than Spider-Man, you know, of and he's, he's, he's terrific on everything. But, uh, uh, yeah, but his, his Spider-Man is terrific, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled and proud and honored to be able to call him a friend. Uh, same way I feel about Roger Stern, you know, it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's still, it's still, you know, the 12-year-old in me still can't believe it, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I may not be able to call these people friends, but the fact that I've been able to talk to any of these people at all uh, has been a huge thrill, being able to, again, get an insight and also just thank people for the work they've done because it meant something to you. I mean, how often do you get to do that? I mean, you know, in a lot of mediums, that's just not possible. Um, but in comics, sure. it's, it's a small medium, and you can still talk to these people, and you can tell people that something mattered to you, and hopefully it matters to them, at least a little. Many, many of them, yeah. I mean, there, there are some that you know <laughs> that think they think that they think they're in another business. <laughs> one that's one that's a little you know more important than than, than comics. You know, mm-hmm. no names, but um, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it's you know when when, when my daughter and I, um, my daughter was looking at for colleges, and at one point she was um, she was considering um, uh, Ithaca, and we were going up there to visit you know the campus. How cool is it to be able to, like, you know, reach out to Roger and say, hey, I'm going to be in Ithaca. And the next thing you know, you're having dinner with Roger and his wife, Carmela, you know, and he, he, he gets to meet my wife and my daughter. And, and you know, we, we're trading stories about the old days. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, it, it, and later that night, actually, you know, um, because we, we were up there for the weekend, my, my, I took my wife and my daughter to see Avengers Endgame up there, you know. Um, and this was like an hour or two after having dinner with the guy who wrote the Avengers. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Absolutely. I think about that, and it still kind of blows my mind. But but it's it's great, you know. And, and Tom DeFalco is another one. It's it's I'm I, I'm thrilled to be able to call him, you know, a friend. You know, um, all these guys. It's it's uh, you know, and you have to like sort of like you know, I, I never reached the the stature and the heights that these guys did in the business. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I just mentioned the Avengers. It's, it's you know, being in Marvel is kind of like, you know, being an Avenger. Once once an Avenger, always an Avenger. Mm-hmm. You know, once a Marvelite, always a Marvelite. You know, and, and it really is a, a very sort of tight-knit, you know, very small, relatively speaking, group that, that you know, we were all a part of. And, and you know... So many of us are still in touch. It's it's really uh, it's really something. I guess in some ways the bullpen is real. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a bullpen, you know, in our in our minds and our hearts, and 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 in some cases, literally, yeah, there was, yes. <laughs> Well, again, Glenn, thank you so much for for coming on again and uh, for your great stories. And yes, we'll definitely have you back at some point to you know talk about Stanley and your and your memories of working with him. I'd be happy to. Excellent. Well, thank again. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. I, I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.